0: The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Welcome to another edition of The Best in the World with Richard Parr. We're only a couple of weeks away from the Rio Olympics. They only come around every four years, the Olympic Games. And on this week's episode, we speak to another Olympic champion. On this week's episode, my guest is is the shooting Double Trap Olympic champion from the Sydney 2000 Games, Richard Folds. Now don't worry if you're not sure what Double Trap is, Richard explains it to me in the podcast. We have some very interesting discussions on psychology, including what went through the mind of Richard's opponent, Russell Mark, in that 2000s. Olympic final. He also talks about the pressure of being a defending champion, why competition is just as important as practice and why a little and often amount of training is the most productive. He also tells a very funny story of how his PE teacher once put in his school report that he didn't have very good hand-eye coordination. That's quite surprising when he became a shooting Olympic champion. Some really good things to learn from from Richard on this podcast, a bit like you can learn from the previous 22. All you have to do is go to iTunes, The Best in the World with Richard Parr. You can also find out more details about me on my website, richardparr.net. And for those of you who check out the site regularly, you'll be pleased and surprised to see that I've started blogging again. I've started giving news information and it can be anything I'm interested in. Obviously, a lot of the things I'm interested in are to do with sports. So we might have things about nutrition, about psychology, about technology, about wrestling, about football, about tennis. Who knows what it could be about? But check out the blog, richardparr.net forward slash blog. One of the things I mentioned this week is about a new app I've been using called Clamor. That's C-L-A-M-M-O are and it's really cool it's wanting to be like Instagram but for audio so being a podcaster it's really useful for me because I can now put the best 24 seconds of all of my previous podcasts and my future podcasts to give you a little snippet of what's to come on the show and you know I think that can help people who are like hmm do I want to listen to the best in the world with Richard Parr oh I can't be bothered to listen to a whole 45 minutes but maybe you'll listen to 24 seconds and go oh wow, that, that is interesting. Maybe I will listen. Maybe I will download it. Maybe I'll download, subscribe, rate, review on iTunes, tell my friends that it's really good. Maybe you'll end up doing all of that. So that's one thing I'm using. It's Clamor. So have a look at that. Details on my blog, richardparr.net forward slash blog. Another thing I've started to use is called paper.li. So paper.li. And what it does is it gets these different bits of social media so it could be from Twitter, from Facebook, from Instagram and it collates it and it collates it in a way so it looks like a newspaper and you can do it for yourself and you can pick your friends' social media posts, you can pick people you really admire or your favourite sports stars or your favourite musicians and and every day or every week and however regular you want it, it can create a, a homepage, a newspaper page of all of their best tweets and shares and likes and everything like that. So what I thought would be really good is that we've learned so much from my previous guests on The Best in the World with Richard Parr that there's so much more that we can learn from them. And one way of doing that is to follow them on social media. So on the Best in the World with Richard Parr news, yes, that's my paper.li name of my daily edition, I've got all of the social posts from the previous people I've interviewed on the show. And of course, each week we get a new interviewee. I'll add them to that so we can continue to learn from the greatest sports stars on the planet. They're former world champions, former Olympic champions, former world number ones, and former world record holders. If you're going to learn from someone, you may as well learn from the best. Well, just before we get to the best, I want to tell you that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free, yes I said free, it costs you nothing, audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. Yes, I said free again, it's free at www.audibletrial.com forward slash best. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. It's a great chat with Richard Foltz here the best in the world the best in the world podcast with Richard Parr Richard Folds welcome to the best in the world with Richard Parr you're an Olympic champion from 2000 not everyone knows too much about shooting so let's start with the basics for people who don't know too much what exactly is double trap? Okay,
1: so Double Trap is one of the clay target events um, that is held at the Olympic Games. There's three different disciplines of clay target shooting. Um, Most people have probably heard of skeet shooting, um, which is one of the events. Uh, Olympic Trap is another event, and Olympic Double Trap is the third event, which was the most recent um, addition to the clay target program, which was introduced in, I think, uh, the late 80s or early 90s into the
0: Olympic program. And obviously you got very successful at that but I heard that you were quite a natural that your first attempts doing clay pigeon shooting you hit 17 out of 25, is that true?
1: That is true, yeah, that was a good few years ago I think I was 8 or 9 years old and I had my very first shooting lesson um, with a family friend who, of my father's who uh, used to do a bit of part-time instruction and... I shot 18 out of 25 on my first go and he said that it was, you know, I looked quite natural. Um, and then, you know, growing up on a farm and and being in the countryside environment shooting is something that, you know, it's not uncommon for people to have access to, you know, we're going back 30 years now. So, um, you know, it was quite common for, um, you know, people of that generation to grow up in that environment with, um, you know with that going on around the family so that was the way that I got introduced to the sport really.
0: Mm, That's amazing I remember my family had a family holiday to France and all four of us had a go at clay pigeon shooting and none of us hit anything so for you (laughs) to be hitting 17 out of 25 um, I'm just amazed at that well obviously you then became a world and olympic champion.
1: i I'd, I'd blame your coach for that one
0: <laughs> <laughs> so then then what what happened there did Did you go home and were you like, "Ah oh, I was really good at this, or I really want to get into this or where where can I do this more how How did that progression then happen
1: um it It is one of those sports that is quite addictive I mean I presume any sport is if you if you feel you're naturally um good at it and you've got a bit of talent to go with it, then obviously that makes um makes you keen to go further into it and to, you know, to try and, um, and get as far as you can in it. And I was fortunate that both my parents uh, were very supportive and wanted to try and help me along. It's obviously, it's, it's not a cheap sport. Um, so you have to take that into consideration. There's ongoing costs all the time with it, with ammunition and clay targets, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously the guns themselves don't come cheap. Um, so I was quite lucky in that respect that um, I was able to do quite a lot of practice in the early years um, and then I got introduced to um, the Olympic side of things when I was 16 um, at, a, um, at a championship that we were going to which was a completely different discipline and different event to any of the Olympic events. but they got this Olympic event running as a small side event to try and introduce new people to it. Um, had a go at that, did quite well. Um, and then got asked to go to the um, British team selection shoots. I was, I think I was 16 at the time. So I was still shooting as a junior competing as a junior, which is up to 21. Um, and then took up the double trap and got quite good quite quickly. Um, and before we kind of knew where we were we were at an Olympics in 1996 in Atlanta so it was all all quite quick really.
0: You say you needed quite a lot of practice in in those early years and one of the things about this podcast is we we try to find out how many hours people actually put in because you know everyone wants to be the best but they don't necessarily put in the work so back in those early days when you were 13 14 and probably still going to school and everything around that how many hours a week were you actually putting in?
1: Um, I was um I used to finish school at about three thirty. I would come home um and then at the time before we before we'd got our own shooting school which we've got now, um, we used to have another fairly local place which um is where I did most of my learning over the years. Um so I used to go and shoot when daylight allowed through the summer I used to go and shoot there from, from sort of four o'clock in the afternoon for a couple of hours most of the um most of the days of the week week so I was probably shooting about eight to ten hours um, practice every week after school and then at the weekends I was trying to do as many events as I could to get the competitive experience as well not just the practice because they're two very different things um, which you know the same for any sport where you can have someone who's a fantastic golfer in practice but put the pressure on of a competition environment um, and it brings in a whole new side to the game, really. So, um, you know, practice-wise, I was doing probably eight to ten hours a week, and then Saturdays and Sundays was doing as many competitions as, as I could possibly get to, really.
0: So did you thrive in, in competing, thrive in beating people, thrive in being around that competitive environment? W- would you perform better there?
1: I absolutely loved it, um, and I still do now. I'm still very competitive Um, I don't do anywhere near as much. I hardly do any training at all now, but I still absolutely love the competition environment. Um, And I need, me personally, I need an incentive, um, be it a small side bet with somebody, a fellow competitor or a coach who was teaching me at the time, Um, just something to shoot for rather than just to train with no sort of end result um which for me was quite important so it could have been anything from a simple one pound bet um on a training day just to give you something to be motivated over
0: and do you have that competitive spirit in other activities in everyday life do you bring that into like a game of cards or all different things which you might do out of shooting
1: yeah I mean I think it's it's like anything if you've got that competitive edge um you, you just don't like losing no matter what it is that you're doing if it's business related or sport related um then if you've got that that urge to be the best that you possibly can then you need to try and um channel that into the best way possible to help you either win or to be as good as as you can be
0: how did you cope with losing in those early days
1: um it's just something that you have to um you have to overcome you can't let it get to you um Try and learn from your mistakes. What happened? What was different? What caused you not to perform at your best? Um, is it something that was in your technique, so more physical, so the more physical side of the sport, or was it something that was more the mental side of the sport? Um, and then obviously you, you try and build on that for next time, not let that same mistake happen again, um, and try and improve on on your performance from the previous event if you've not had a very good day
0: you said about technique there, obviously that's technique in shooting, but I heard something that your PE teacher, when you were a child, said you had poor hand-eye coordination. <laughs> You've been doing your homework, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, that's what I do, that is my job.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, no, it, it was it was reported in one of my school reports um, that I haven't got a very good hand-eye coordination, so it was quite nice to be able to Throw that one back at my PE teacher after all those years.
0: <laughs> Are you coordinated at other activities?
1: Um, reasonably well. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I'm I'm as good at anything else that, that I am at cheating, but um, you know, I can I can get away with a few different things in different sports. Mm,
0: it's, it's interesting. I read Matthew Side's book, Bounce, which is brilliant onto uh, sports psychology. And one of the examples he gives is uh, there's a a British champion at squash and they do some sports science. I think it's at the University of Sussex, actually, where it was one of these things where he had to touch as many flashing lights as possible. And this guy had the quickest reactions when it came to squash. But when it came to touching these flashing lights, he was the slowest. And I guess it's that muscle memory of you become very good and coordinated at one thing rather than another.
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, and uh, I think it was it was him that mentioned the ten thousand hour rule. Wasn't mm. it? I think about um, about you. you that's you, only when you've done your ten thousand hours at a particular sport or whatever you're doing. Is it then feels natural, um, mm. and that is very obvious in shooting. But then you can you can be very talented or very naturally talented and very good or Um, if you take for example, Peter Wilson, who won the, um, Olympics in the same discipline that I did in the London Olympics in 2012, he's probably one of the most unnatural shots that I've ever seen. Um, but he has worked tirelessly and endlessly, um, and has perfected a technique, which is quite unique to himself. Um, but you know, it just, it's the complete other end of the scale on the natural ability side of things.
0: Mm, I guess that's a bit like Michael Johnson, the way he used to run slightly differently to everyone else but would beat everyone by quite a distance in in the 400 metres.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So you became the world junior champion at 16 you probably, they, they say to get your 10,000 hours is over 10 years so if you've started 8 or 9, I'm doing my maths here and that's probably about 8 or 9 years. How good were you then? Did you really think that when you won those World Junior Championships that you were going to one day be an Olympic champion?
1: Um, well that the, the events that I won the World Junior Champions at, Championships at were, were non-Olympic events so it was, although it's still play target shooting, it's what people would um be more familiar with clay target shooting so if you went to a um a corporate clay shooting event with your business or you got invited as a a guest of a company and you went to a shooting school you would shoot clays that were thrown in all different directions throughout the day um quite random and every scenario that you go to would be a different presentation of clays so some would be thrown towards you some thrown away some crossing left to right Uh, Some rolled along the ground etc. So all different sort of scenarios the unique thing about the Olympic events is um, Across all three disciplines you can go to any of the um, Any of the venues in the world that Put on these events and the targets will be exactly the same They'll be thrown from A to B at a certain height a certain speed a certain distance. So they're all regulation targets Um, so it's something that you can perfect a technique at um, and be very mechanical at. So you, you can, it's already premeditated. You know where the clays are going, you know where they're going to fly to. Um, so once you've learned that technique, it's just a case of when you go to a new venue, um, you, you then need to, to just learn the range with pickup points and where you first see the, the targets, et cetera. So when, when I was shooting the non-Olympic events when I was world champion at 16, um, that was at the non-Olympic side of things. Um, so I had to, to kind of relearn the whole technique side of things when I took up the Olympic discipline of double trap. Um, and it took a couple of three years to really get that kind of nailed. Um, but then once you've got it in your head and you learn the mental game of it because it's Quite a different mental preparation. Um, obviously when you've got an event that, like an Olympic Games only comes around every four years, it puts a different kind of scenario on the situation.
0: So tell us about that mental preparation. What would you do before a competition or, or in the weeks leading up?
1: Um, you obviously set yourself goals through um, your stages of training, whether you're um, looking to qualify for an Olympic Games or whether you've already qualified, so you can relax for a little bit and then look at a longer term goal of an Olympics in twelve to eighteen months' time, so you obviously try and um, try and channel all your energy into one particular day you know it's not It's not quite as bad as the sprinters who are running over nine point eight seconds their whole life revolves around that nine point eight seconds, but it's still you're focusing on one particular day. Uh, because the event would run over a course of a few hours through the day with qualifying rounds, etc., Um So you need to just set yourself little training goals, try and achieve consistent scores leading up to that. Um, again, going back to the, the, the training, but evolving competitive edge to the training, which is quite important as well. So um, there's all those things that you just slowly build up. Um, and everybody's uh, quite different. In the way they like to train, I was more um little and often whereas some people would go and shoot a thousand targets in a day, have a couple of days off, and then go and shoot another thousand targets, whereas I would shoot a couple of hundred a day and do that most days of the week um so it's it's very individual everybody's different training regimes
0: what what about the people near near the top of you are you saying different around the the real top competitors is would you recommend always to people to to do little and often rather than long and and rare um i think i think little and
1: often is is better um for the majority of people because it, it comes back to the muscle memory thing again if you can if you can go and shoot um 100 plays a day that i mean i know this is at the very very top end so You've got your your Joe Bloggs clay shooter who might shoot once a week, once every couple of weeks on a Sunday. Um, that's a bit different. But when you're talking of world championship level and Olympic level, and then um, I think Litland often is, for the majority, is probably better than going out and shooting yourself to a standstill one day and then not doing anything for another couple of days.
0: The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Don't panic. Don't panic, Mr. Mellering. Oh, I've gone all a bit dad's army there. No, I was going to say don't panic. We've got more from Richard Folds in just a moment. But I just wanted to take this moment to tell you about the latest audiobook I've been listening to. And it's one by the journalist John Ronson. So You've Been Publicly Shamed. The book explores the reemergence of public shaming as an internet phenomenon, particularly on Twitter. You know, people make mistakes and then everyone jumps on them. You know, it's always good having that high horse, isn't it? Or not, as the case may be in John's book. I've really been enjoying listening to it. I wasn't sure I was going to like how John narrated it, but it actually really grew on me. And I really enjoyed listening to his voice and his stories. He's a great storyteller. I've heard him on other podcasts before. Always got something interesting to say. And how about you have the chance to listen to it for free? For you, the listeners of the Best in the World with Richard Parr podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash best for your free audio book. And I highly recommend the British journalist John Ronson's So you've been publicly shamed. Well, there's no shame in the achievements of Richard Folds. Let's go back to my interview with the Olympic champion. The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr. So you were 19 when you went to your first Olympics in in Atlanta in 1996. How was the whole experience for you when you first got there?
1: Uh, It was fantastic. Um, I mean, obviously, being in that environment, it's something that every sports person kind of aspires to, to to represent their country at the Olympics. Um, And... You know, we were staying in the village, so you see all the other athletes that you always kind of hear about on the news or on the telly. So it's quite a an eye-opening experience just in itself, regardless of the event that you're competing at. Um, and one of the big things about shooting events is, is very rarely do you get any big crowd that actually um, watches the events themselves. So you might get um, the competitors themselves come and watch other competitors shoot. But you wouldn't get Joe Public um in their thousands come and watch at a uh, a regular event. So when you're competing um in the Olympic Games and you've got a grandstand behind you with five thousand people and cameras poking out of every hole in the ground and uh, you know, it's just such a different environment. Um so trying to overcome all that um and perform to your very best Um, at your first Olympics is something that's quite daunting for a lot of people.
0: So did all those people make you nervous at all? Um, I wouldn't say
1: nervous. I mean, I was quite lucky um, that I've always liked to... I'm not a show-off, but I always like to try and perform my best if people are watching, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, So, and I'm still like that now. If there's... um, if there's an event and there's a lot of people watching, you always try and just really perform to your very best level. Um, or I personally do. Whereas a lot of people, I think pressure works two ways. Either works for you or against you. You can either excel under pressure or you can crumble. Um, and it it seemed to me that from pretty much the Olympics uh, in 96, that was the first time I really performed in any in front of any sort of crowd but it sort of worked for me. Um, And I did pretty well, finished fifth, made the final, which was the top six, finished fifth. Um, So I thought for my first first Olympics, I was, you know, I was
0: delighted. So you were talking about pressure there. Obviously, when you won gold four years later in 2000, it was in Sydney and it went to a shoot-off, which was against an Australian on home Mm -hmm. soil for him.
1: Yeah. He was defend, he was defending champion.
0: Defending champion. Was there too much pressure on him being in front of his home fans?
1: Um, I don't think. I think you could have. We could have been anywhere in the world, and the pressure um, of defending your title would be um, something which is very very difficult to describe. It actually happened. Uh, j- jumping forward another four years, it happened to me and, Athens when I was defending champion Um, and that was a very different pressure for me but going back to the Sydney Olympics when um, he was defending champion he shot extremely well all day long Um, he was I think two points in front of me going into the last 50 shots which was your final which was for your top six competitors Um, so if you get into an Olympic final anything can happen and we've seen some people go from hero to zero over the years with different disciplines Um, and with I think with ten targets left to shoot he was four points in front of me so at that point you would think that it was kind of curtains it was game over Um, all you have to do is shoot another five pairs of targets and you know job done you've done it tens of thousands of times over the years you know, you should be able to pretty much do it with your eyes shut. But when someone's dangling an Olympic gold medal in front of you, you know, it just you've got a job to remember your own name sometimes in that situation.
0: And w- with you being able to to catch up on those points and then it going to the shoot off, did you feel that the momentum was with you and the and the gold was in your grasp?
1: I did because I think three pairs from the end of the final, uh, Russell Russell Mark, who was the Australian he was defending champion. He, um, he closed his gun, put his gun into his shoulder, ready to to call Paul for the targets. And he then uh, dropped his gun down. He opened it and reset himself. And then he went through his mental preparation again, Closed the gun, called for the targets, missed the pair. Um, which was very, very unexpected. Anyway, it was, six months after I a to Russell, what did you think when that happened in the final, when you, you closed your gun, you were ready to shoot and then you didn't, you dropped your gun down, you started your preparation again. And he said to me that um, he felt like he was losing it. Um, and he had that thought just before he was um, preparing himself to shoot that particular pair. And it, the thought went through his head that he was losing it to stop, and to start again. Sure enough, when he shot the pair, he missed the pair. Um, And then I think he hit his last two pairs, but that was what really cost him, his basically um, his second Olympic gold medal, was the the fact that his mental um, preparation just showed a little bit of weakness for a couple of seconds. Um, And then that was it. You know, we ended up on a tie, um, so obviously that, for him, was probably the the key point for him not winning. In fact, not losing it, but for him not winning. If that makes sense.
0: Mm.
1: And obviously the momentum, the, the momentum for me catching him up through the final, and then we went immediately into a, a sudden death shoot off. Um, was probably the favour was probably slightly, you know, it was probably slightly in my favour from that respect.
0: Incredible insight there on the on the men, the mental state and the difference between winning and losing. You said mm. it was going into his mind of that for that split second he thought that he was losing it and and then he missed. Is there anything that you do or anything you've been recommended that can reset that brain, reset that mind, and, and not think about those things? What happens to you when you think you're losing something, and how do you reset?
1: It's that's the million dollar question, really. It's very, very difficult, um, you know. And we've worked with sports psychologists over the years. Um, I worked with a guy called Peter Terry, who was from um, Brunel University in London, and he knew nothing about clay shooting. I knew nothing about sports psychology. Um, we got on really well. He was absolutely fantastic, and he worked through um, Sydney Olympics with me. Worked with him for about ten years from '98 onwards. Um, and you know you you get into situations and you it's it's not allowing the negative thoughts to come into your head. You've got to try and keep positive thoughts going all the time. And most of it, what what you end up talking to sports psychologists about now is common sense.
0: So, what was it you think that went wrong in Athens? Then, for me.
1: Um, there, going as defending champion was a very different. Uh, I had a very different outlook on it than I did when I went to Sydney because going to Sydney, I had nothing to lose. Um, I knew if I had a good day that I would hopefully make the final and maybe have a chance of a medal, but obviously to win it was the icing on the cake. But then uh, for me, going to the um, Athens Olympics as defending champion, there was always a thought in the back of my head that. Uh, um but at the end of the day if i don't win it i'm no longer olympic champion um and from a personal side of things i probably didn't prepare myself um for that you know in in advance enough to try and put myself right if those thoughts did come into my head if that makes sense
0: were you overconfident at all Going into Athens, yeah, being being the Olympic champion.
1: Um, no, I wouldn't have said I was open. There was people that were um, shooting very well at the time, and uh, the guy who won in Athens, Arkmedal Mactoom, um, was you know he was he won the two World Cups previous to that. Um, he was shooting. In massive scores at every event that he went to, so I think that barring a disaster, most people that were there knew that he was going to be the one to beat, rather than me, even though I was current Olympic champion. Because obviously, you know, the Olympics only comes around once every four years, and people's form can change dramatically in that time. So,
0: well, you continued to compete for ten years after that, and then decided to retire competitively at the end of twenty fourteen. What what made you make that decision?
1: Um, with I've only retired from the Olympic side of the sport I'm still very um, active in the, the non-Olympic events but um, the, the Olympic side of the sport it just takes over your life um, and I've done it since the age of 16 until I was 36 or whatever it was so um, it was just time for me to focus on family business etc mm. um, so it just you know, you end up traveling around the world and not having any time to yourself. Um, so it was, you know, I've done five consecutive Olympics, so enough was enough for me, really.
0: Did you enjoy any of the traveling? Were there any places you liked to go or was it always just a hassle?
1: Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't have said that any of it was a hassle. It was just um, you were there doing a job. You weren't sightseeing and like beach and everything else. You were there to, to train or to compete. So you, you know, you would never really have any downtime. Um, so it was, you know, everyone thinks, oh yeah, it must be great traveling to all these lovely places and having all these, you know, holidays here, there, and everywhere. But it wasn't like that. It's, you know, airport, hotel, shooting ground, airport, back home.
0: Yeah, I've heard quite a lot of that from from different people who who work in yeah. international sports. So. You said working now on your business. Tell us about the Owls Lodge Shooting School.
1: Um, Well, that was um, something that all stemmed from when I very first took up the Olympic side of things. Um, There there was very, very few places to train anywhere in England. Uh, The nearest place to us was two or three hours away, so um, we were fortunate enough to have the space on the farm that... um, my mum and dad managed to get a Olympic trap layout put in um, and built on the farm so I could train pretty much as and when I wanted to. Um, and then it, it just grew from there. People wanted to come and shoot with me and then can I give them a lesson and so on and so on. So it just grew and grew um, to what it is today, really.
0: And how can you tell from any of the people you teach quickly that they're going to be any good? What What are the attributes that they have?
1: Um, well, unlike my PE teacher said to me, hand-eye coordination is probably the <laughs> biggest fundamental thing um, and an understanding of what you're trying to do uh, with a shotgun. So I try and explain it to people that if you, if you shoot a rifle, you're shooting at a stationary target. It's easy to put the cross on the target, pull the trigger and hit the target. When you shoot a shotgun it's very different because you're shooting at a moving target. So if you can imagine um, somebody throws you a ball, and when you go to catch the ball, you don't put your hand where the ball is, but you put your hand where the ball's going. Hmm. Um, So when you shoot a moving target, you need to shoot in front of the moving target because by the time your brain has told you to pull the trigger and the shot has gone from the gun to the target, the target's moved x amount of inches feet etc depending on the speed and the distance of the target so hand-eye coordination and understanding of the what you're trying to achieve um are the two you know the two fundamentals really that that are quite important if you're going to be good at any point in your career
0: and uh, is there one thing that you know now that you wish you knew as a competitor wish you'd known 10 15 years ago
1: um no not really no I mean I wouldn't have changed anything that I did um over the course of the years so I enjoyed my time at it um you know I always put 100% effort in and some days were better than others really
0: mm. and and how do you relax how how would you spend your do- downtime when you were competing
1: um, what when I'm at home or when
0: uh, both when you were out on the circuit and then also when you were at home practicing what what were the things which would make you not think about shooting or what are you thinking about
1: 24-7 um, I don't really think about anything else
0: <laughs> really wow <laughs>
1: no, I pretty much eat, sleep, breathe um, shooting so does my wife you know she's very competitive she shoots as well so um, you know it's in the family it's you know our son shoots our two Girls, that, you know my two step daughters. They go shoot, so um, you know it's it's a full on, full on shooting house, really.
0: How, how good are the kids? Are they going to be potential world and Olympic champions?
1: Um, you never know. I mean, the the two girls they're they're um, fairly good. They shoot more socially than they do competitively. Um, they're eighteen and sixteen, um, but Charlie, who is nearly nine. He's quite competitive um, and he's, you know, especially through this summer holidays coming up now, he's going to get lots of opportunities to get some good practice um, under his belt and maybe in, you know, six, eight, ten years time it would be great to see him following in my footsteps one day but I'm not going to put any pressure on him to do so. It's up to him at the end of the day. I don't want to force him into doing something just because Dad did. You know, it's a thing to do it's up to him if he wants to follow that route
0: Mm. well I wish him all the best and I really appreciate your time just before we go Richard could you just give our listeners details of how they can know about the Owls Lodge shooting school and if you're on any ways of social media or any websites or anything else you'd like to promote
1: okay well we're um, Owls Lodge shooting school is based between Andover and Winchester uh, in Hampshire Um, we're open every Tuesday and Thursday throughout out of the year for practice, tuition corporate events. Um, if you've never had a go at clay shooting, look us up, give us a call, come and have a try. You never know, you might like it and uh, get addicted and be the next Olympic champion.
0: Well, fantastic. Richard Foles, I really appreciate your time today and thank you for being the best in the world.
1: Pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Wonderful stuff there from Olympic champion Richard Folds, shooting double trap winner from the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games. I really enjoyed his story about how he won the medal in Sydney and what was going through the mind of the defending champion Russell Mark. The only way you'll find insight like that is by listening to world and Olympic champions such as Richard Folds. And that's what we do every week on the best in the world with richard Barr. if you've enjoyed this episode why don't you go back and listen to a few of the others Uh, another one i really enjoyed was john potter episode 18 the former olympic hockey champion we've got one's From Darren Campbell, the 4x100m champion. We've got Ellen Hoog, another hockey player. We've got all different types of champions from Snooker, Stephen Hendry and Sean Murphy. They're all on the iTunes page, best in the world with Richard Parr. If you don't have iTunes because you don't have an Apple phone, an iPhone, but instead you're on Android, do not worry, you can listen on Stitcher. Stitcher has the best in the world with Richard Parr. There's so many different ways you can listen to the show. Maybe on Overcast. Maybe you can listen to the whole episode if you want on Clamor. I also post the show every week on my Twitter page at Richard underscore Parr. Every episode's on the website, richardparr.net forward slash podcast. Many different ways you can learn from the best. We want to improve our sporting abilities or just our everyday lives. And I think we all appreciate what we're learning from these talented individuals. Again, if you've enjoyed this show, all I really ask for you to do is maybe consider the sponsor. I've spoken about Audible earlier. I use it myself, so I highly recommend you use it. By using it, you're helping yourself, but you're also helping me at the same time, so it'd be great if you could do that. Also, if you'd like to help me, what I'd really like for you to do is to tell a friend, be it on social media, be it in person, tell them you've been listening to this podcast, you really enjoy it, or maybe there's one episode, maybe your friend is a shooting Expert, And they want to hear from an Olympic champion or they enjoy snooker or they enjoy football or they enjoy cricket. Maybe they want to listen to Akib Javid's interview, the former Pakistan player, former Pakistan World Cup winner, no less, because that's what we have on this show. Winners that we can learn from. So all I ask for you to do is share it with a friend in whatever way you think is best and go on iTunes and please rate and review the show. I cannot underestimate how important it is for that to happen and to help build the show. Well, it's been another fun episode with Richard Files. More great guests to come. Stay tuned to what's coming up on the website, richardparr.net, on the Twitter, richard underscore parr. But until next time, I hope you have a wonderful week. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.